Morning, Jin Yu. How's everybody doing today? You've been singing real good. When I can hear you behind me down here, you guys are on point. And you were this morning. Y'all were lifting it up. That's good. That's good. Hey, big shout out to everybody who went to the gala on Friday night. I saw some people. Yes, yes, yes. Some of you can dance. Some of you can't. You don't know that yet, but you can't. Ask your wife, ask your partner. You know, some of you can, though. You're really good. Uh, those of us that can and know it, don't. Right? Or at least we should. We should not dance when we can't. But hey, we had a great time. Had a, we, had, we sold it out, obviously, and it was a great night. We extended the, the night about a half hour, and man, some of you guys just stayed on the dance floor right up until the end of it. And, and I know, I know, I grew up, I grew up in, in an era where um, the only dancing you could do was what they used to call dancing in the spirit, which was at church around the altar down front. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm fifth generation Pentecostal and, and I've seen some dancing around some altars. I've seen, I've seen people dance, ladies with hair you know, and when they finish, it's bobby pins like bullets flying everywhere and all kind of stuff, you know. I mean, it's, and, and, but, you know, we always said, you know, you can't dance in public, but you can dance in church. And I never could understand that. And I know, and I, and I was young, I know that. And, I, and so, I mean, dancing was a sin uh, if you didn't do it at church and around the altar. Seriously. First time my grandmother found out I was going to a, high, to, a, to a high school dance, she called me and she asked me this question. She said, Phil, what are you going to do? Jesus comes back while you're dancing. <laughs> you know, I, and it was the same way with movie theaters and, and, and everything. We could, the only thing that, that Pentecostals could do in those days was go parking. I'm telling you, on the back of our membership cards, you, there was a whole list. There was a whole list of things. You can't dance. You can't play cards. You can't smoke, dip, or chew, and hang out with girls that do. You can't do anything like that. None of those things. I mean, it was just a whole list of stuff. If you were going to be a part of an Assembly of God church, you couldn't do stuff. But parking wasn't in the list. So guess what a lot of us did? We danced around the altars of church. Sometimes. <laughs> no, it was a great night. And, and here's, here's the thing that I appreciate. I appreciate the reality of evolving and understanding scripture and recognizing that not everything that we have called sin down through the ages really is. Amen. And moderation is the key of everything and modesty and all those things. And so we had a great night Friday night. It's going to be, it's a tradition now. It's going to be, it's going to stay here till Till uh, Jesus comes, or at least until I retire, anyway, and uh, which is that years down the stream. But the deal is, we had a great night, and we hope in the next year uh, that we may have to do it twice. When we sold out 300 seats in just a short period of time, so if we expand it next year, we'll just do two nights. One group can come one night, and one group can come the next night. Sound good? <laughs> well, you got a year to think about it. Um, all right, we got Christmas coming up. We're just a few days away. How many of you got your shopping done? Everybody finished with it? Good, good, two of you. Um, 
How many of you are going to wait till Christmas Eve? Um, you better get it in early. Amazon won't deliver on Christmas Day. So, but here's the thing. Here, let me give you the schedule for Christmas at Gen U. Uh, as you know, usually the last Sunday of every year, we take Sabbath Sunday, give our volunteers a rest. It's the end of the year. People are traveling. Families are gone. A lot of stuff. Christmas is actually on the last Sunday of this year, this year. And so we, we were, you know, I, I, I want to honor the day and we want to do the things. That, so we called the eldership together and we, we talked about it at great length. And, and at the end of the night, here's what we decided to do. Uh, we're going to have on Christmas Eve from 4.30 in the afternoon until 6.30 in the evening, we're going to have uh, uh, a special private family communion for you and your family. Uh, you can sign up at the hub. You can sign up online. We've got little windows set up. There's going to have 10 or 15 stations set up in the student building in the sanctuary over there. And, uh, and so you come in, just you and your family will go to one of those stations. We will have communion served to you. We will have a prayer with you and we'll speak a Christmas blessing over you. And then you can go and, get, and be about your Christmas Eve activities. Uh, we did this years ago. It was such a success. We stopped it for whatever reason. I don't remember, but, but we're bringing it back this year. But you need to sign up. And you're only here 10 or 15 minutes. You come in and you say, well, I got a bunch of family coming in. I can recall doing communion for 25 family members at one of our stations. It's okay. You bring your whole entire family. Well, some of them don't know Jesus. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Bring them. Bring them. It's a, it's a nice evening and it's a good time together. You do that and then that starts your Christmas weekend. On Christmas Day, we're not going to have in-person services here at, on, at, the, at the campus. But what we're going to do is record a Christmas service and we're going to stream it four times on Christmas Day. 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 2 o'clock, and 4 o'clock. So if you're not an early riser, you don't, you, you know, you don't, you don't, you can watch the noon, the noon stream of the service or the two o'clock or the four o'clock. Uh, but we want to make sure that those of you that, that want that has that opportunity. It's going to be a little different, uh, but we're going to record it, uh, in a couple of weeks, get that done. And so we'll stream it four times on Christmas day. And, uh, and that way we still have Sabbath Sunday. Um, and you can, but you don't have to get up and get dressed early to come to church for 45 minutes or an hour and then go home and you, your kids can have their Christmas and do all the things that you do. Tons of people are traveling this year. We get it. Uh, so this is what uh, the staff and the elders came together, and after much discussion, this is where we felt like this is where we should go, and so that's what we're doing. Everybody good? Uh, now, here's the other thing. There may be some, I just feel like it's Jesus' birthday, so we're going to go to church somewhere. Okay. Look online. There's probably a church around that'll have service on Sunday morning. But here's what you need to understand. And I'm... I'm fixing to throw some of your parents under the bus and y'all going to do some research and talk to your children. You do know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. Okay. So let's not get wrapped around the day. Let's honor the day. Let's use it as the day that we celebrate his birth, but don't get so legalistic that you think that Jesus just happened to be born on December 25th, all those thousands of years ago. Okay. Cause he didn't. And I'm not going to tell you when, so you figure it out. Okay. All right, a couple weeks ago, we started a series called God Can. I talked to you uh, the first week about God can do things that we don't think he can. Um, and so today, I'm going to talk to you about God can restore. God can restore. Next Sunday, and this is the one that got created a lot of buzz when I said this, 
Next Sunday, I'm going to talk to you about God can walk away. So we're going to talk about that next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, the 18th, we're going to talk about God can show up. Um, so just, uh, just hanging that, dangle that little bait out there so you can uh, be thinking about next Sunday as we go into this. So today, God can, part two, God can restore. Uh, Kim and I, as most of you know, Kim and I are in the process. Uh, we sold our house here in Niceville uh, a year or so ago, and we bought some property up in the country. And, and uh, our plan was to build us a barn dominium. And, uh, and so we went to, we got the, got the property secured, did all that. I went to uh, about five or six different lending institutions and, and found out that nobody loans money to build a barn dominium. They won't loan you money on that. And I had, I had three banks, two of them local here. They, they told me, they said, Mr. Daniels, here's the deal. It's the fastest growing trend in America, but nobody loans money on a barn dominium. And so we had to step back from that because all of our plans for our ultimate retirement home kind of went out the window with, we can't loan you money on the barn dominium. And so the property that we bought had a little cabin on it, a little hunting cabin. These guys built it and it was just a little tiny, it had five bedrooms and a living room and a kitchen and a bathroom. That's it. Now, when I say bedrooms, I mean like large closets. Um, you know, thousand square feet. It was really small. Uh, and so I woke up about two o'clock one morning and I had an idea. And so I, I got up before Kim and I sketched it out on a piece of printer paper and, and was doodling on that. And when she got up, I showed it to her and I said, Hey, what do you think of this? And she said, what is that? I said, that's our cabin. If we decide, if we renovate this, we do this, then we can build what we want in this cabin and probably save us a whole bunch of money. And so she said, I like that. And so that's what we've done. But here's the process when you start to restore something, okay? If you're, it's a very long process, okay? It, it's a long process. Um, it's, it, it's about to kill us. I'm just going to tell you straight up. You know, and I've told you stories of crawling under it and snakes crawling out the other side, all this kind of stuff. But uh, we've learned some stuff. And here's the thing, here's the thing I learned right off the bat, because a dear friend of mine, a great guy, uh, I was talking to him. He's kind of been my advisor on this whole thing. And so we were talking and I went, do you think I should do something with the foundation of this old house? And, and the house, by old, I mean, it was built in 2015. <laughs> but he said this, he said, he said, if you don't fix that foundation up front, you're going to have a mess down the line. Amen. And so I'm thinking, foundation, how hard can it be? You know, and so I called the guys, the, the guys out of Mariana came in and they crawled underneath the house. They looked underneath the house and they said this. They said, okay, every post, every, everything that this house is sitting on is rotted off right at the ground. And so your whole house Everything above the ground looks pretty good, but everything right at the ground is completely rotted off. So anyway, to make a long story short, five days and thousands of dollars later, uh, they came in, they picked up the house, they went underneath it, took everything out from underneath it, set it on concrete pillars and strapped it all down and we had a foundation. The next step is we went in and we gutted the thing from one, no more five bedrooms, we just gutted the whole thing. And so now we have this big open shell. After that, what do you do? You start putting it all back together the way you want it put back together. And, then, and, and here's the deal. In time, which seems to be eternal at this point, 
it, it, it becomes better than it was before. So you've got the process uh, of renovating is not unlike the process of restoration. You have to start with the foundation. Then you have to, then you have to gut the stuff, which we're going to talk about this in some detail here in a little bit. Then you start putting it all back. And then in time, it becomes something that really is better, that becomes better than it was before. In my personal life, in my life as a pastor, in my life as a, as a husband and, and, and a father, and just as an individual with relationships, God's restoration process has been a long and messy thing. Uh, if you think that restoration is something that's quick and easy and that there's no mess to it, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Because that's just not true. Now, you, some of you are looking at me like, well, you're supposed to kind of build us up here on Sunday morning so we feel good when we leave. We'll get there, but remember, we gotta, we got to set the foundation, then we got to gut the thing before we start putting it all back together. And it's just, it's a long and messy process, just like any home re- renovation or home revitalization. So let's start here. Let's start with the difference between reconciliation and restoration because they're not the same thing. A lot of people think that reconciliation and restoration are identical, but they're very different things. Now, they, they have some similarities, okay? Reconciliation is the easy part. Reconciliation simply means the, the, to bring back uh, or restore the friendly relations. In other words, you just get to where you're friends again. Then you can have a conversation without wanting to claw each other's eyes out or slap each other or dog cuss somebody. When you restore something, though, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. This is, this is why, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this, this is not the message, but I've got to say this this morning. Many, many times in our relationships, especially if we were in an abusive relationship, we were in a toxic relationship, if we were in a, in a, in a relationship that was unhealthy, completely unhealthy, reconciliation is where it can stop. Okay, because I'm just going to be honest with you, if, as, a, as a wife or as a husband or as a, a lady or a man, if you're in a relationship where you're getting slapped around or you're getting verbally abused, sexually abused, physically abused, uh, you can forgive that person and reconcile at a point where you can have a conversation, but you should never go back into that. Okay? Uh, yeah, but the church said, that. look, I'm telling you, that's not what God meant. And if you want to have the conversation about it, set up an appointment after the first year and we'll have a conversation. I can't talk to you between now and the first year because I'm building a cotton-picking house. <laughs> Maybe one of the other guys. Tommy can talk to you. <laughs> get, get Tommy or Charlie or Jeff or Denisa or, you know, or Ryan. Where are you? Where are you? Yeah, Ryan, though. Yeah, Ryan. Stand up, Ryan. Let everybody see Ryan. This is Ryan Trimmel, our student pastor. Come on, buddy. This is the guy right here. He's got it going on. Talk to Ryan. But the, the, thing, the thing about it is you can be reconciled with someone and that's where it ends. But if you, want, if you want God to do something deep in your relationship, then you've got to go beyond just reconciling. And restoration is the process. I mean, we are reconciled to God at a word, at a belief, actually. We believe in Jesus Christ. In that moment, we're reconciled to God. Boom. The distance between us and God is over in that moment. But when it comes to relationships that are lateral, it's different. And we've got, to, if, if we're going to have something better in the relationship, better than before, then we've got to go beyond it. People that have marital issues, you can be reconciled at a word. 
But if you want that relationship and that marriage restored to a place of beauty and a place of health and a place of strength, then you've got to go through the process. And the process is a long one and it's messy sometimes. To restore something means to bring it back, to, re- to put or bring back into existence or use. Now, listen to this. To bring back to or put back into a formal or a, an original state to put again in possession of something. In other words, you, the relationship is something that you hold fast to. You hold fast to. In the Bible, restoration is always in abundance. Always. When something is restored, it's always better than it was to begin with. God promises to us, his promise to us is a better way, a better life, a better future for ourselves and for our loved ones. All through scripture, in your notes, if you're looking in new version, you see there's a ton of scriptures. I'm not going to read them all, but you've got them there. In Isaiah 61, it is it's a messianic prophecy about Jesus coming. And what is Jesus going to bring onto the scene when he comes, the Messiah comes? He's going to bind up brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for captives, release from darkness for prisoners. He's going to bestow on people a a crown of beauty instead of ashes, all of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of despair. And those individuals that have that that thing happening in their life, they become called oaks of righteousness. They rebuild ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. And it says, in, in the NIV, it says they will renew the ruined cities, but it actually means they will restore the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. So Jesus' entire purpose for coming centers around restoring. What is, the, what is the center of Jesus' act of coming? Is to restore humanity, restore creation back to an Eden state. When everything went haywire in the Garden of Eden, God said, I'm going to send, I got a plan to bring all this back into alignment. And, he, and it's through Jesus. Now, we're never going to see perfection as we saw in Eden in the beginning on this side. But one day, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we're all with Jesus, it's all new. That's the ultimate restoration that Jesus brings into the scene with everything. David prayed this prayer to God in Psalm 51 after his, his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. 1 Peter 5, 10, he says this, that God of grace who calls you, after you've suffered some, will himself restore you to make you strong, to make you firm, to make you steadfast. Again, in Psalm 23, David talking about the shepherd. I, I don't, I, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. He makes me lie down and bring pastures. He leads me besides, he restores my soul. And the most famous of all examples in the scripture of restoration is John 21. It's Peter. I'm not going to read it. It's a lengthy passage, but it's, it's 18, the first 18 verses of John 21. And you've, if you've been around here for a few years, you've heard me talk about this a number of times because it, it's, it's so like God, but it also shows the process. Jesus is dead. He's been resurrected. The disciples, Peter, one day, he just said, I'm going fishing. He's been under a lot of stress with Jesus dying and he did some bad stuff. He denied Jesus three times and then the rooster crowed. He ran off. He saw, he saw from a distance, he saw Jesus die. All this stuff. So Peter goes fishing one day. And they're fishing along the bank. Fished all night long, hadn't caught a thing. And I've, I've done that. It's a miserable night of fishing. It's a miserable day. It's a miserable hour of fishing if you're not catching anything. That's why my mother doesn't fish. My dad took her fishing when they were first married. Stayed all day long. 
Didn't catch no fish. They've been married 63 years. My, my mama didn't fish. <laughs> but my dad didn't know the fish are not biting. Let's go home. My dad's, a, when it comes to fishing, he's the ultimate optimist. He goes, we'll stay here long enough. Sooner or later, something's going to bite. So you come home with one or two fish after a day of fishing. This is what's going on with the disciples. They're fishing all night, hadn't caught anything. They get close to the shore, and they look over there, and they see somebody on the shore, and this guy's way, hey, hey, have you caught anything? No, we hadn't caught a thing. Hey, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Now, let me, let me just tell you something. I've seen the boats that those guys use. There's one in a, in a museum over there, and it's about, I don't know, yay wide. Maybe five feet wide, 10 or 12 feet long. They've been fishing on this side of the boat all night. What difference is five feet going to make? What difference? And I know, I know Phil. And Phil would go, no, I'm done. I'm not going to throw these nests on the other side. That's more work. I haven't caught anything. I'm not throwing over there to do this. I'm done. End of the evening, end of the day. But for some reason, these yahoos take the net and throw it on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, five feet of difference, no fish here. Like, get what I'm saying here. No fish here. Fish here. <laughs> I mean, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Now, I remember years ago when fishing with my dad and some other gentlemen, some of them from this church here, and the gentleman fishing in my dad's boat, he wasn't catching any fish at all. And my dad's just one. And my dad could catch fish in a parking lot. He could put a bucket out and catch a fish in it. I'm just telling you, that's just the way he is. I just wish he was able to fish again because I would take him tomorrow. Shoot. But anyway, my dad's also got a mean streak. And so this gentleman is fishing. He's not catching a thing. My dad takes his brim buster, his pole, and puts it right down beside this gentleman's cork and catches a fish. But my dad doesn't stop there. He does it again. Finally, the gentleman goes, I'm done. And he puts his, puts his, he said, I'm not fishing anymore. I mean, there are some of those people like that. They can just catch fish. But for some reason, Jesus knows where the fish are. I don't know if it had something to do with the fact that he created them or not, but you know, they're there. So they catch this load of fish. Anyway, when they finally catch the fish, one person in the boat says, wait a minute, that's, that's Jesus. At that point, Peter puts his clothes back on and jumps in the water and swims to shore. And here's where we begin to see Jesus going to great lengths because it's only been a short period of time earlier, they had dinner together and Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're going to deny me tonight three times. And he does. Peter feels himself a failure. He's messed everything up. He's denied Jesus three times. And now he comes to the shore, not really knowing what to expect, but knowing that he needs to do something. But in that moment, he didn't have to do anything because Jesus goes to unbelievable lengths. He does something very interesting. He recreates the setting of Peter's betrayal. 
He recreates it. There's only two times in scripture where you see a charcoal fire mentioned. One of them is outside of Caiaphas' house the night that Peter betrayed Jesus, denied Jesus. And the other time is on the, sea, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus begins the restoration process in Peter. How many of you know smell is a very powerful thing? Charcoal fire doesn't smell like a gas grill. It just doesn't. I cook on charcoal a lot. When we're grilling, Kim and I, I, I grill on charcoal. Well, I just like it fast. Okay, you like it fast, great. But there's nothing, nothing like a steak or a hamburger cooked over charcoal. It has a distinct taste. It has a distinct smell. You can tell the difference. Peter gets off, comes into this, and the first thing he smells is charcoal. And I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, Terry, but I'm telling you straight up, the last time Peter smelt charcoal was the night he betrayed Jesus. So he's in this moment. He's in this moment. Jesus, is, they have this meal of fish, and Jesus says, Peter, I need to ask you some questions. And he asked Peter three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The same question three times. Three questions. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Three times. I mean, he asked, Jesus asked Peter three, so many times, do you love me, that Peter got, actually says Peter was hurt. So what's Jesus doing? He's taking him through a process. He's, not only has he laid the foundation. See, Jesus forgave him on the cross. Remember what Jesus said? Father, forgive them. Forgiveness happened on the cross. So Jesus, the foundation was laid. Now Jesus is gutting the thing. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? For every one of us in this room and those that are going to watch this, those that are watching it at home and others watching it over the next few weeks, Jesus does not just offer forgiveness or reconciliation. He offers restoration to all of us. It does not matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how far away from God that you've been. It has nothing to do with anything. It's simply, you need to know this today, that just as Jesus forgave and restored Peter, he does that for every one of us. He restored Peter to love. He restored Peter to fellowship and relationship. And he also restored Peter to usefulness to others or usefulness in ministry. You see, the God that we serve, Psalm 103 tells us, is the God who forgives all of our sins. David said that God forgives all of my sins and he restores my soul. Now I want you to notice this. It says forgives and restores. Not forgave or restored. Forgiveness is continual. Forgave or restored is past tense. He didn't say that. Forgives, constant. Restores, constant. Always, the door is open to forgiveness and restoration. It's a constant, continual thing that happens and it indicates the process again. The process of laying a foundation, the process of gutting and cleaning everything out, the process of putting it all back. And in time, <clears throat> it becomes better than before. Working, when you and I are working through rest, that, that's an easy thing. With God, it's quicker. 
at some levels. Reconciliation is done in a moment. Restoration with God takes a little bit longer, but there's a process that we have to go through. But most of the time, the process is more about us than it is about God. Because we can't let, we don't want that. We don't like the gutting, but we got to let stuff go from our past. But yet God leads us through that. We see, we have the smells of our past, the charcoal fires of our past that God deals with, brings us back to those things in time. And then we have to let them go in a moment because if we live with those things hanging around, then we live under this cloud of guilt and condemnation. And God is not a God of guilt or condemnation. But what about when we're working through this stuff with other people? What about the lateral relationships in our life? Galatians 6.1 says, if someone's caught on a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Starts with forgiveness. Starts with forgiveness. It's the, forgiveness is the foundation that we all have to face and all have to go through. But then from forgiveness, we move into something that very few human beings like. And that is the humility phase. That is the phase where we have to deal with our pride and approach someone in the humility of being wrong. But I wasn't wrong. Yep, you were at some level. We're all wrong at some level. Galatians 6, 2a, the first part of verse 2, it says this, watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. And a lot of times we've taught that is, well, you'll be tempted to, to do something you shouldn't do. And the real deal, the real temptation there is the temptation that we are above mistakes ourselves. That's the real temptation. That we, we develop this high and mighty attitude toward people that have wronged us, that I'm better than they are. I've got, I've got my, they need more Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, we all need more of Jesus. We all need more of Jesus in our life. The latter half of verse 2 into verse 3 says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. In other words, it's it's not about having a a good, healthy self-awareness and healthy self-image. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who literally believes that they are better than someone else and that they have got the market cornered on spirituality. That's what this is. And I'm going to tell you something. Restoration will not occur with that attitude in your heart. Never. It won't happen in your marriages It won't happen in your friendship relationship, and it doesn't happen in your relationship with God. Because you'll justify your actions of unforgiveness, thinking, well, God, forgive me for anything, so he can forgive me for this. And you know, if you've sat here for any length of time, that that's just not true. Because unforgiveness is the only door that grace will not beat down. We're only forgiven to the level that we forgive other people. Everybody okay? Then verse 4 says, each one should test their own actions. Self-awareness. Self-awareness. Where are you? Where are you in this thing? I mean, have you gone through the gutting? Have you done the foundational thing of forgiveness? 
well, I've, 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 I've forgiven them, but I don't feel it. Look, the feelings of forgiveness may never, ever be present. But forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a decision that we make. We choose to forgive. And just so you understand this morning, God's not okay with it if you don't. God's not okay with it if you don't. And God doesn't understand your unforgiveness because he has looked past every fault that you and I have ever had, everything that we've ever done, every way we have violated his, his righteous and holy code. And he said, beyond all of that, if you know my son, you're forgiven. So God's not okay with it. So you lay the foundation, but then the gutting begins. It's the getting over yourself. You ever, you ever known those people that, that it's never about them? Well, I did, I did that because, it, I, the, because they did this to me. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. That person, the person that looks at everything as if it's someone else's fault and the reason they're where they are is because of what someone else did to them, that shows a lack of self-awareness and a tremendous lack of humility. Because all of us need to understand that the cotton-picking world doesn't revolve around us. It doesn't. And if you want to have any type of reconciliation and restoration in your life with God and with other people, you've got to get to a place of self-awareness when you recognize, I am where I am because of decisions that I have made and attitudes that I carry. Yes, someone may have offended you, someone may have hurt you, someone may have violated you, but if you're still carrying that stuff after you know Jesus and after you're supposed to be following Jesus, the problem is not the other person, the problem is in you. And you've got to address that piece of it. Self-awareness is the thing that most Christians lack. We're not self-aware enough of what is really going on in our own heart because we buried it and we've covered it over and we become callous to our own issues while pointing out other people's issues. Yes. You still okay? Yes. Okay. Hang on. We're getting a little closer here. So how, how do you begin... How do you begin the... Once you've laid the foundation, you've chosen to forgive, and then, you, then you're trying to gut this thing. Where does, it, where does the gutting start? I am sorry. You know how you can know if you're not self-aware? Because your apologies sound like this. I'm sorry, but anytime an apology is right followed by the word but, it's not an apology. It's an excuse. 
I'm sorry. That's where it starts. It's amazing how many doors I am sorry will unlock. It's amazing. But it's also amazing how many I'm sorry buts will add padlocks to the cage. Not of that person, but in your own life. Once you go down that path and then you let everything, and look, I'm telling you, takes years sometimes. It takes years. But if you are willing to go through the process of rebuilding the foundation of the gutting that's necessary in your own life, don't worry about the other person. This is about you first. You'll be amazed at what God does in them while you're walking down this path. And then you start putting it all back together. It's interesting when you read the book of Job. Job, the Bible, God refers to to Job as a perfect and upright man. A person that didn't have any sin. I mean, he he was, when God says you're pretty good, guess what? You're pretty good. You're good. But yet, the enemy attacks Job and a continuation. There wasn't just the fact that the enemy attacked him and, and he, lost his, he lost everything. All of his kids, all of his money, he was wealthy. Lost everything except his wife. That, that's a sermon for another day. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. Because I don't, I don't... And I'm telling you what, she was not the most supportive lady. Okay, but we'll talk about it another time. So here's the thing. After all of that, in the middle of all this, his three best friends. Now get this, these three best friends, they come, they bring stools. When someone walks up to your house and they got a, they got a camp chair under their arm, they plan to stay a little while. That's just not, hey, how you doing? They, they wanna, so they come and they sit down around the fire in their camp chairs and Job is sitting in the ashes. He's got pottery, he's broken. He's scratching the boils all over his body. And one at a time, for days on end, these three friends berate their friend over the sin in his life because if he didn't have sin in his life, he wouldn't be going through the junk that he's going through. For days. He tries to talk about, look, I don't know what, I've not done anything. And Job is not a person that lacks self-awareness. Because there are times when he questions God, show me. The last chapter of the book of Job. Restoration comes to Job. In 42 verse 10. Full restoration, the completion of all of it. God restored Job's fortune when he prayed for his friends. What did Job do? He stopped making it about himself and began to lift up his friends. Now look, in Jesus' interaction with Peter, Peter, he said, Peter, I love you. Peter, I forgive you. Let's eat. Let's eat. I have a relationship in my life that went away 15 years ago. 
because of offense. Shortly after everything went south in the relationship, this gentleman and I, we sat down and we said the things that needed to be said and we were reconciled. And we've seen each other many, many times in the last 15 years. Had good conversations. I've performed weddings for his children. But I'm standing here today to tell you that 15 years later, restoration has occurred. And this is the beginning. Look, no, 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 no just, just hold, hold tight. I'm only telling you this story. I wouldn't embarrass him for the world, but I'm telling you this story because you need to understand that breaches only come on both sides of the issue. But when both sides do the deal and you say the words that need to be said and you don't burn any bridges, you don't cross lines with one another and you leave it open, God does beautiful things. It may take 15 years. But regardless of the length of time that it took, God has restored us into relationship. And this Christmas season is different than the previous 15. Simply because we've gone through this process and God has brought us back together. You can't short circuit it. There's no shortcuts to it. Sometimes you say the words that need to be said and then you wait. A year ago when he and I talked for the first time in Great Lane, we went to lunch and we had a long conversation. We found out, looking back 15 years, you see a lot of things that you didn't see in the middle of all of it. But we've watched now with these recent months is how, how God has just literally brought us back into, into friendship and into relationship again. And I couldn't be more happy. But it's a God thing. And we didn't burn any bridges. And we left it open. And God done, has done some really, really beautiful things. But I'm going to tell you straight up, everybody in this room, it begins with a simple, I'm sorry. I screwed up. And, and all I can say to everybody in this house today is get over yourself. Get over yourself and say, I'm sorry. And let God do what he's going to do. And don't do the I'm sorry but thing because that ain't an apology. And time better than before. Let's stand all over the house. Everybody, you got your communion element with you? All right. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Um, just hold them. Don't open them yet. Just hold them. If you're in this house today and you've got some stuff that needs to be restored, 
as a husband and wife, as a relationship with somebody else. You say, well, don't make me come front. Well, I'm going to. I have to stand up in front of you guys every Sunday so some of y'all can come down to the front. But here's the thing. If you're serious about it and you want restoration, it begins with the foundation. It begins with forgiveness. Husbands, wives, friends, you may need to go, you may need to walk across the aisle in this church or the other end of the building and say, I need you to come with me. Or you may just be at a point where you got to get it straight with God. And so you need to come by yourself to get things okay this way before you work on this. But whatever you have to do, today begins it. If you need something restored in your life and you're willing to start the process and you want to say, I want to stay the course, I want you to bring your communion stuff and I want you to come forward right now in Jesus' name. else you want to come you keep coming I've got I'm just going to say something to all these around the front and to you that are out there as well the reason that I wanted you to come forward with your communion cup is because communion is a huge piece of reconciliation and restoration as a matter of fact we have for many many years gotten it wrong when it comes to the Lord's table, when we would tell people to examine themselves to see if they had any sin in their life and get the sin out of their life before they took communion. And we would tell non-believers that they couldn't take communion because they had sin in their life. And the problem with sin is that even as believers, we have sin in our life. But Paul wasn't referring to that type of thing in our life. What he's referring to is broken relationships. Because the, the whole per, previous, whole part of that chapter leading up to this, he's dealing with relationships that are broken in the Corinthian church. And he says, look, you examine yourself. And if you've got ought against somebody else, you fix that before you do this. You fix that before you do this. Because if you don't, then you're actually, in one translation says, you're drinking damnation to yourself. And for this cause in Corinth, people were sick, physically ill because of unforgiveness, because of broken relationships. And some had actually died. You say, well, that's a real downer field right here on Sunday mornings. and I get it, but I'm telling you straight up, God's not okay with that crap in our life. And yes, I said it. So we're going to begin the process of foundation and gutting today. Those of you that are across the front, those of you out there, take the elements. Let's take the bread. I'm going to ask you a question. Your answer is, I do. This is the body of Christ. Do you honor it as such?
That's how we eat together. Next question. This is the blood of Christ. Do you honor it as such? Shall we drink together? Now for all of you that are across the front of the building, I just want you to do this. If you're down here together as a couple, join hands. Or hugger, that's okay too. And I'm going to pray for you, but you pray for each other. Those of you that are down here individually, pray. Make it right here. Get the foundation. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you through the gutting process. Father, you see every person here. The couples that are here, the individuals that are here, God, you know, you know what is needed in each and every life. I don't have to know. I don't need to know. But you do know. And more importantly, they know. So as they're giving this to you today, Father, I pray that they would bear their soul to you. That reconciliation with you and being in right relationship with you would come in a moment. But Father, I pray for a special anointing of the Holy Spirit as they go to the next part of their journey, and that is the gutting process. Because this is not something that happens easily. This is not something that happens quickly. This is something that sometimes takes 15 years or more. But God, bring us to the end of ourselves. Bring us to the end of ourselves. That we step out of our own pride and ego. Turn us into dust, Jesus. So that the potter can rebuild us into a vessel of honor. Do your work in our lives. Do your work in the lives of every person across the front of this building, everybody that's standing out in this congregation, those that are in their living rooms today, God, and those that will be watching sometime over the next few weeks. God, do your work in them as we yield to you, Jesus. You will not work. And you will not go, but we refuse to let you. God, may the foundation be laid. May the gutting process be complete. May we begin to put it all back together so that in time it's better than it was before. Do your work, God. Do your work. Now let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Virginia, I love you. I love you. And I want God's best for you. So start the process. Tommy.